It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. There are some things in life that I don't get. Not many, because whether I agree with them or not, I kind of understand where most people are coming from, why they say and do the things that they do. But here's one I simply don't. And despite asking for logical explanations, I have received none. How come Israel was allowed to perform in the Eurovision Song Contest last night? And Russia was not. Now, I'm not talking about uh, longitude and latitude. I'm not talking about points on the compass of the European Broadcasting Union's satellite. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about politics. How come Russia was banned from Eurovision, but Israel not just honored, but again winning a respectable place in the medal table. Can it be because Russia has invaded its neighbor's territory? Can it be because Russia has effectively annexed a part of its neighbor's territory? Can it be because Russia is making war on some of the people in its native next-door territory? Can it be because Russia is breaking international law? In so doing, all of the above, can it be because Russia is repressing human rights in the territory it now controls? Can it be any of these things? And of course, it cannot. Israel spent the entire week prior to the Eurovision Song Contest bombarding to smithereens an absolutely captive, illegally captive population of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. More than two million Palestinians live there. Israel controls every exit and every entrance. Most of the time, the people have no clean water and no electricity, a real problem in the winter, an even bigger problem in the summer especially if you're trying to keep medicines usable in the midst of regular, repeated carnage. Israel spent last week systematically destroying people's houses. Of course, an Israeli bomb has zero impact on international public opinion, zero impact on the people who organized the Eurovision Song Contest, But of course, a Russian bomb is far more effective. Well, one or two of them have been particularly effective this very week. But returning to my point, Israel has illegally occupied the entire West Bank, 
East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip for the last 65 years. 65 years of international law-breaking. More than that, they have now illegally annexed the Golan Heights that belong to Syria and East Jerusalem that they conquered by military means. They have broken every international law by creating hundreds of thousands of settlers in settlements with separate settler roads with an apartheid system where the Palestinians queue through the barbed wire to go from A to B while the settlers travel on a super highway built with your taxes. Israel has, by any standards, conducted an illegal apartheid system in the occupied territories for 65 years. Don't believe me. Believe brave Israeli journalists and broadcasters who've been making this very point this week. But not content with 65 years of law-breaking, every so often, and last week was another, they go on a murderous rampage, killing women and children in their beds, in their houses, bombing an apartment building to kill three of their political opponents, caring not that dozens, scores of other people were asleep in that very same apartment building. This is what I would call terrorism, wouldn't you? Even if you don't call it terrorism, it is a war crime that simply cannot be gainsaid. It is a war crime to target civilian residential dwellings. It is a war crime to deny electricity and water to territories that you control. It is a war crime to change the character of territory you have seized by military means and occupy. It is a war crime to annex and declare to be yours territory that belongs to another. None of these things are even contestable. But Israel is in the Eurovision Song Contest. It's in the European Football Championships. Even though it isn't even in Europe. Russia is in Europe. Now, whatever view you take, Russia has undoubtedly invaded Ukraine. Russia has undoubtedly, through referenda, separated some of the territory that it has liberated from its former owner, the state of Ukraine, and now it's in Russia. And that's why Russia's been banned. I actually don't have a problem with that. That is completely inevitable, completely predictable. It's what you would expect to happen. My point is, why does it happen to Russia, but doesn't happen to Israel? There's one other difference. Russia is on the receiving end of withering international criticism, ostracism in the mainstream media 
that is no insult considered, too base to be thrown at Russia. But Israel isn't sanctioned or criticized at all. In fact, it's becoming a crime to criticize it in Western countries. Israel is receiving endless reward from the so-called international community for the crimes that it is committing. I'm just asking why the double standard, though double standard doesn't quite deal with hypocrisy on that level. Now on to some other matters. The Pope had an audience with President Zelensky this week. At least that's what it looked like in the photographs. Zelensky was sat down while His Holiness the Pope was stood up. Zelensky was shaking hands with the chief of staff of the pontiff whilst remaining in his seat. Something you wouldn't do to a bum that approached you in the street. But that's how they treated the Pope. And I got to wondering what happened to the Pope. The Pope was very clear early in this conflict that NATO shared the blame for what has happened in Ukraine. Where did that go, Father Francis? Where did the peace plan of the Vatican go, Father Francis? Would you go to Moscow? and stand up whilst Putin was sitting down? Would you bless the armed forces of Russia as you blessed the armed forces of Ukraine? Why do people who say they want to broker peace actually blow it out of the water by demonstrating vividly their preconceptions, their own personal and political dispositions? But more important than how Zelensky treated the Pope, it's how he's treating you that's worrying me. The economic, cultural, political position in Europe, American-occupied Europe, it must now again be described, is such that one begins to question the sanity not of the European political leaders. They will be richly rewarded for the stances that they are taking. But the sanity of you, the European public, who are watching silently, except in the case of France, and except in the case of thousands, not millions, of demonstrators against the war, against NATO, against the US, in various European cities, capitals, and otherwise, you are, for the most part, silently climbing on board a truck which you know or ought to know is taking you to the national political abattoir. We are spending billions defending the borders of Ukraine but we cannot defend our own borders from thousands upon thousands, in the American case, hundreds of thousands, of illegal, overwhelmingly men, migrants who are arriving on our shores, 
undocumented, uncharted, unchecked, many of them disappearing to God knows where. Did you see the American border? Why is Joe Biden sending hundreds of billions of dollars to defend the border of Ukraine when his own border has literally fallen? It's literally fallen down and the masses of the oppressed of Latin America, oppressed by decades of U.S.-sponsored dictatorship, the poor from Latin America, impoverished by decades of American economic and political dominance, are headed to a hotel near you. In Washington, they're turfing U.S. military veterans out of hotels and putting the new influx of Latin American migrants in it. Is there any wonder that trouble is brewing in the US and in Europe over all of this, over the fact that we're endlessly a war abroad but can't even defend ourselves at home? And so I'm wondering, not just about Kamala Harris, did you see the video of her? talking about how her mother used to ask her if she thought she fell out of a coconut tree. Giggle, silence from the audience. I'm worried about the sanity of all and sundry in this political picture that we find ourselves in. India is on the warpath and I'm right behind them. India wants its jewellery back. The British Empire stole trillions of dollars from India. And most of it is simply unrepayable. But the jewellery isn't. And India wants every last artifact and piece of precious jewellery that the British stole from them back. The most significant of which is the Kohinoor diamond which sits, last time I looked, right on the front of King Charles III's regal, th regal uh, crown. Now, I'm ready, the Indians would like me to, to try and stage a citizen's arrest of His Majesty to return that stolen property to its rightful owner. Although it may be that the courts will get there before me. President Erdogan's downfall was eagerly anticipated and industriously worked for by the United States, by the NATO leadership whose troublesome priest they are, he is. They have long wanted someone, anyone, Bulen or any of the uh, donkey derby opponents facing him in today's election to beat him, to get him out of office. Now, I have many, many differences with President Erdogan, but I'll tell you this, when I look at the people who hate him most, when I look at the people who are trying to bring him down, I say, well done, President Erdogan, because it looks like you are going to secure 
a first round victory despite all the regime change efforts that were made. In Africa, we had the most extraordinary spectre this week where the American ambassador to South Africa publicly accused the leadership of South Africa of breaking international law, of being criminals, the country to which he's accredited. He publicly accused them of being criminals. He's walked it back saying he realizes he crossed a line, but he did it. And it's there in the ether now for always. And I got to reminiscing. I was reminiscing about the role that the United States and the United Kingdom and almost all of the countries of the European Union, but not the ones that were then under Russian influence, played in the maintenance of and then in the destruction of the apartheid system in South Africa. I just saw a post which astounded me. In 1990, after the liberation, after the release of President Mandela, regarded globally as one of the greatest men ever to walk the earth, after his release and prior to his first ever visit to the United States of America, the US government, which had him on their list of banned terrorists until 2008, wouldn't send him an airplane capable of taking him from South Africa to the United States. According to the post that I have just looked at, who do you think flew President Mandela to the United States for his first visit there after his release from the apartheid dungeons in South Africa? Donald Trump! Donald Trump sent one of the Trump air fleet to fly Mandela from South Africa to the United States because the United States government would not do so. I'm old enough to remember when all of the countries of Western Europe, of North America, and the United Kingdom itself stood four square with apartheid and against Mandela and the ANC and the freedom struggle. Yes, compute that if you're too young to remember it. Do you know who was on the side of the liberation movement all of those decades? Do you know who gave them everything they needed to liberate themselves? Russia. That's why the West is backing the apartheid state in the Eurovision Song Contest and banning the country that always struggled against apartheid. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. It is the mother of all talk shows. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. My next guest is one of the best intellectuals on the European mainland with a great breadth of expertise as a commentator, journalist, and broadcaster. He is Elijah Magnier. He's a veteran war zone correspondent, uh, but he also does a fair bit of sharp political analysis too. And Elijah joins us now to discuss, amongst other things, Elijah, the Turkish election, the the votes are not by any means all counted yet, but uh, President Erdogan has a very large lead over the main opposition candidate and may even avoid having to have a second round runoff. That's at least my take. What is yours? Hello, George. It's great to be with you. I do agree with you. However, only 70% uh, of the votes have been counted so far. And he has indeed 51%, which he only needs 50% plus one to win the election from the first round. And I also agree with you that there are many differences with Erdogan's policy, particularly in Syria, in Azerbaijan, in accepting Finland as part of NATO, and all the other things with the refugee, etc., and the uh, uh, occupation of uh, still part of Syria and Iraq. However, there is a desperate uh, Western will to remove, to see Erdogan away and uh, see a change of power, even if the Turkish election is one of the most democratic election that the Middle East can have and even Europe, because we've seen 88% of the 63.5 million voter, which means 57 million voted, which is for the Turks is a kind of a ceremony to go and vote. And fortunately for the Kurds, for the locals, they don't really care or don't read, they don't have access to Western mainstream media because they don't want to and they don't read and they don't look for another language unless it's translated by the local media. So all this call about the lack of democracy in such a, an excellent democratic election is only heard by among the mainstream media journalists who are really talking to each other and nobody is listening to what they are saying when they say it is not democratic, you know, when they're saying that Erdogan has been too long in power 
Angela Merkel stayed for 15 years in power. And they say it's a lack of democracy when our best allies have never seen an election like Saudi Arabia, like Egypt, like all the Middle Eastern countries who know nothing about democracy, and yet they are our best allies. So all these accusations against Erdogan and pushing the Kurds for the first time who live in the southeast of Turkey to vote for uh, Kemal Kirikdar Oglu, the uh, er uh, Erdogan's opponent, this is unheard of in the history of Turkey. And yet uh, more than 70, 75% of the Kurds that represent more or less 10% of the voters supported the opposition, still Erdogan has, until this moment, 51%. And I think if he continue with eight, if we reach 80% and if he maintains this distance, then he will make it in the first round and there is no need to go for a second round on the 18th of May. Splendid uh, overview uh, tour of the Turkish horizon there, Elijah. I'm grateful uh, for that. I want to focus on the Kurds. Uh, the Kurds are uh, picked up and put down again according to the needs of those who wish to use them. Their legitimate rights, long denied, not just in Turkey, uh, but in other places too. Uh, are sometimes dusted down, given front of house, and then, of course, put back on the shelf when the Western uh, politicians and media no longer need them. So uh, there, was the, there was the immortal phrase uh, of now Lord Archer, Geoffrey Archer, the former parliamentary colleague of mine, when he explained to Parliament, you see, there are good cards and there are bad cards. The good Kurds are the ones opposed to Saddam Hussein. The bad Kurds are the ones opposed to the then friendly Turkish uh, regime. So suddenly the Turkish Kurds, long ignored, have now been given uh, front of house prominence by Western commentators uh, who ignored them all down the decades. What impact? will that have on the non-Kurdish Turkish majority? Will this not deepen uh, the divisions between Kurdish citizens of Turkey and non-Kurdish citizens of Turkey? Well, the Kurds of Turkey have been known in the past years, uh, the past decades, have been majority Sunni with a small minority of Alevi. However, after the era of uh, Kemal Ataturk, uh, they became today more secular. This is why the Americans uh, put all their weight on the Kurds to support uh, the opponent of Erdogan because Kemal Kerekdaroglu um, uh, would never had uh, dared to run the election without the 10% of the voters. And that, that represent the Kurds. Of course, there's going to be a difference between uh, the Kurds and the Turks, even if the Kurds live in Turkey and they were given a status by Kemal Ataturk. However, the late 
prime minister of Turkey denied the Kurdish language. They call them the Kurds of the mountain. And this is why the, the uh, uh, word that the uh, Kurds have only the mountains as friends comes from. And nevertheless, they are integrated in a society. And the only problem today is they have indeed responded to the wish of the Americans. Because if we look at the uh, uh, coalition of the opposition against Erdogan, they have absolutely nothing in common. The government would have been a disaster because they have all different program, nationalistic, right-wing, uh, Islamist, uh, all, all walks of life and different ideologies and different uh, political program. Uh, and yet they have managed to come together only on one common ground, is to remove Erdogan from power, which means how uh, deeply Erdogan was hurting the Americans, not because he was pro-Russian, and here we have to be careful. No Turkish president can be pro-Russian or pro-American. Every single Turkish president needs to keep a balance between, between the US and the West and Russia, which is something that the Americans don't want at all. They want to see someone who's supporting them. They want to see someone who's closing on uh, Russia completely. They have supported the coup d'etat in 2016. I remember when I received the communique from the U.S. embassy supporting this color revolution, a coup d'etat against Erdogan, when the few months later, uh, before he downed a Russian jet. So pushing the Kurds to play with the fate of the Kurds and then push them against Erdogan, that most probably he's going to win in this election, is not going to put the Kurds in a good position. However, the Americans don't care. Otherwise, they would have left the northeast Syria and allowed the reconciliation between the Kurds and the Syrian government. And every time there is a talk between the Kurds and Damascus, the Americans come forward and prevent that. So the consequences when the Americans will leave, and they will eventually leave because no occupation forces can remain in any country, when they leave, what's going to happen to the Kurds that they have supported all these years against their government, against the government that received them? And this is why the problem that the Kurds haven't learned this, the lesson by watching what happened to the Kurds in Iraq, how the Americans abandoned them when they wanted to declare their independence and called for a referendum, and how the Kurds will be abandoned in Turkey and in Syria when the U.S. will end their uh, interest with the Kurds. The wheel is still in spin, of course, across the region. And uh, the U.S. are placing bets on uh, losing turns of that wheel over and over again. They uh, are now at loggerheads with Egypt, which they have long uh, paid for, long... Uh, armed and given military support uh, to uh, the, uh, the government of General Sisi. But when the U.S. demanded that Egypt uh, refuse Russia to have access to its airspace, General Sisi said no. Were the U.S. expecting that? 
No, the U.S. did not expect it from Egypt uh, to uh, reject a U.S. demand because the U.S. is not receiving a, a, a clear no only from Egypt. There are other countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who are saying no to the U.S. This is why Egypt dares to say no, because today in the Middle East, they see the consequences of the war in Ukraine, the proxy war in Ukraine, is affecting the U.S. and Germany. Undoubtedly, the U.S. still have the strongest military power. However, it's a Germany is no longer uh, dominating the world. There are countries in the Middle East who are striking a balance today between all the superpowers, all the countries of the region, they want to look after their interests first and not America first, as Europe unfortunately is still doing and not realizing and not uh, realizing that they really need to wake up and create less gap between the population and the leadership. In the Middle East, they are managing to do so. Saudi Arabia rejected to increase the oil production. The Emirates did exactly the same. Egypt is saying no to the US. Uh, they are dealing today with their own currency, giving a hit to the dollar. So all these are the invisible consequences of the US proxy war on Russia that we will still be collecting in the years ahead. And we haven't properly, people are not seeing the advantages all the countries of the region are getting by exchanging uh, trade with their own currency, by opening up on a new model that uh, countries like China and Russia, Brazil, South America, uh, Iran are asking them to use their own currency, using an alternative to the SWIFT. There is no dictating policy upon them. You have to do this. You, ha you don't have to do that. You have to abandon this country today. The, uh, the uh, Americans are putting pressure on Saudi Arabia and the Arab League to prevent the return of Syria with no benefit from, uh, for the Americans. So all these nonsensical decisions that come from the Americans today are very much understood by the countries in the Middle East. However, today, the only change is that these countries are raising their voice and saying, it doesn't suit us. I'm sorry, no. How ironic, Elijah, that the former colonies of the European powers in the Middle East and across the Muslim world are finding their true independence just at the moment that the former colonists in the European countries are becoming the satrapies that their colonies used to be. Elijah Magnier, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let me take a quick break. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, it's not just our audience that is breaking new records, 1.6 million viewers in the last seven days. It's the number of people calling the show, oftentimes now in the hundreds Hundreds of people calling the show, trying to get on the air. But another harbinger of that growth is the size of our polls. And this poll may very well be the biggest poll that we have ever had. It is this. 
Is Israel guilty of war crimes in Gaza? On Twitter, where 1,621 people have voted, it's A, yes, 85%, B, no, 15%. Now, on Twitter especially, the supporters of Israel have got a real operation. So that result is an indication of how public opinion is switching. On YouTube, it's yes, 93%, no, 7%. And 1,561 of you have voted on that. On Telegram, 857 people have voted. 96% say that Israel is guilty of war crimes in Gaza and only 4% say no. And on the YouTube community poll, now always the biggest, it is yes, 88%, no, 12%. Ahmed Kabalo uh, is a figure of great importance, a great footballer, a Manchester United supporter, a friend of mine for many years, now living in Africa and the CEO and founder of African Stream, an increasingly influential source of news, information, and analysis about Africa. He hastens from Sudan, his father, a leading figure in the Communist Party of Sudan. So we're going to start at the top of Africa, but I promise him we're going to end up at the bottom of it. Ahmed Kabalo, welcome on board. The mother of all talk shows. Good to see you again. Uh, Manchester United have done better this season, but still a lot more to do. I know you'll be following from Africa every kick of uh, every ball. I do, and I'm even farther away than you are uh, from Old Trafford uh, right now. Let's start with the events in Sudan. Who's fighting whom? On whose behalf? And who's winning? Who's losing? Okay, thank you for having me, George. And yeah, great to be on your show once again. Um, I've been listening and it's a fantastic show so far. So who's fighting who? So there is Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a.k.a. Hemeti, who is the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, fighting on one side. And there is General Abdel Fattah Al-Buhan, the leader of the armed forces, fighting on the other side. Now, you know, what they're fighting for is quite unclear at the moment because I can't see victory for either side. So it seems to be perpetual fighting, um, in my opinion, with the overall long-term goals of derailing the uh, move towards democracy, um, which now looks further, far, further afield than it's ever looked. Um, now, who's backing who? That's a very interesting question. Um, so Egypt backs General Abdul Fattah al-Buhan uh, for several reasons. One of the reasons is because they don't want, they want to see an army in control, an army that they control. Um, and they also don't want to see democracy in Sudan, which could trigger, you know, a move towards democracy in Egypt just across the border. But a bigger reason why Egypt backs Abdul Fattah al-Buhan is because of this perpetual tension that could lead to conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia um, over the Great Renaissance Dam. Now, um, Sudan historically has been in favor of the dam because the dam can help control, you know, the water uh, of the Nile uh, every year, the river Niles, banks flood and destroy the agriculture 
in Sudan. So actually a dam would benefit us. But since uh, Bohan came into power, they've been siding with Egypt against Sudan's national interest. That's number one. Number two, um, since the TPLF was removed from power democratically, uh, the United States has been looking for a reliable ally in the region. Uh, and Bohan presents them as that reliable ally. Uh, Bohan is the one that pushed for normalization with Israel, which was a signal to the West that it was a change from the old guard, change from this kind of hostility that defined the Bashir years. And Bohan has actually been supporting the TPLF in the insurgency against Ethiopia and Eritrea. So that's, you know, that covers Egypt and uh, the US, but we have many more players. We have General Haftar from Libya, who supports the Rapid Support Forces, who, who the Rapid Support Forces was used in General Haftar's push for power in Libya. We have the UAE, who supports the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, General Hameti controls the biggest gold mines in, um, in Sudan. Most of that gold ends up in the UAE. Both the UAE and the Persian Gulf states um, are very interested in the port of Sudan region which is a strategically very important region as it has access to the Suez Canal, the Gulf of Aden, the Horn of Africa and the Middle East. And then, of course, we haven't even got into the discussion about the Russian naval base and the role that it plays in all of this. Um, now, obviously, none of this can be proved, but the US embassy came back to Sudan on the 22nd of April 2022. Um, and then the US embassy evacuated Sudan on the 23rd of April, 2023, in the space of that year, we had the US ambassador warning uh, the military council, which consisted of Hameti and Bohan, against this Russian naval ba base, saying there will be dire consequences. And here we are, you know, less than a year later. Uh, uh, not to say it's them, but we've definitely seen dire consequences on the streets of Khartoum, Bahri and Unduman. It sounds like there are no winners, but it's obvious who are the losers. And the losers are the, the poor people of Sudan with their yearning for uh, a proper democracy in their country. Their infrastructure, such as it was, is being destroyed. Their very lives are at stake if they walk out onto the street. Uh, what do you think public opinion can do in these circumstances where two armed bodies of men uh, are confronting each other? Uh, you might say two men, two bald men fighting over a comb. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one because usually in a conflict, you know, there's a side that you want to win. And in this situation, both sides are reactionary. Both sides have caused you know, distress and terror to the people of Sudan for many years. The Sudanese army has been responsible for seven coups since independence. It was the military apparatus behind Bashir as he con conducted his, you know, genocidal policy in Darfur and the Blue Nile region and the Uba Mountains. And then on the other hand, we have the Rapid Support Forces, which was, which was the army fighting on the ground um, in Darfur, which has been in the last few years a kind of mercenary gun for hire group used in Central African Republic, Libya, Chad and Mali. So it's like, who do you want to win? And there was a recent audio recording 
from, um, you know, allegedly someone in the army saying that they should use the fighting to kill the leaders of the freedom forces and change. So the Sudanese people are really stuck between a rock and a hard place uh, because, you know, the military winning this conflict um, will only embolden them and make, you know, the democracy movement weakened. And the rapid support forces, which is a genocidal outfit winning this conflict, would be a disaster as well. So, you know, I was just given a speak speech via Zoom um, in Burkina Faso, and they asked me the same question, what's the solution? And unfortunately, I don't have an answer. I guess the best thing that the Sudanese people can hope for is for both sides to run out of bullets and to, you know, come to the come to the table and negotiate some sort of settlement. Uh, dismal uh, indeed. Uh, Ahmed, uh, I just read this afternoon about one of many, not just in Africa, but around the world, uh, these uh, Christian evangelical uh, crackpots uh, who, who gather a following uh, in their cult and then murder them. Uh, I'm reading now in Kenya, hundreds of people have been murdered by their cult leader and their organs harvested. And the name of the cult is Good News International Church. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really terrible story. Um, and I think, you know, the the problem behind the story is that in Africa, as the rest of the world, but felt more acutely in Africa, there's this huge economic crisis that has been exacerbated by this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And this economic crisis has exacerbated these preachers who prey on the um, on the neediness and the desperation of their people. And, and you know, the, this idea that you can get closer to God if you do these ridiculous, you know, uh, sacrifices or donations. It's kind of like Victorian Britain where, you know, there'd be a preacher on the side of the street telling people, telling the peasants to give all of their, all their savings to get into heaven. Um, and we're seeing more and more of these cases We've done a few reports about it on African Stream. We've got more reports coming up. It's a really, really sad story. President William Ruto has described it as an act of terrorism. Um, and I think that's probably an, an accurate description. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a real sad story uh, where a preacher has preyed on those that are desperate. But unfortunately, this isn't an isolated incident. And we're seeing more and more of these stories pop up, especially as the economic crisis exacerbates. So... For everyone's sake, we need, you know, this conflict in Ukraine to be over and for the economic crisis that has inflicted the whole world, but particularly Africa at the moment, to, to, to come to an end. Uh, finally, some good news. Uh, although uh, the ANC government in South Africa has been a huge disappointment in many ways, uh, perhaps increasingly so, certainly for me, I speak personally, I suppose, on that. Uh, they sure have stood up to the United States over the issue of uh, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, they left the American ambassador no alternative but a humiliating withdrawal and apology for the attack on the government he is uh, accredited to over the issue of weapons supplies. Bring us up to date, would you, on that? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has accused South Africa of supplying Russians to uh, to Russia. 
South Africa denied it. However, they did set up, said they would set up some sort of inquiry, which to me sounded strange. Why would you need to, you know, investigate something that is not true? Um, I'm not aware of the latest um, regarding the, you know, the 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 retraction by the South African government. So apologies for that. Maybe you can update me. Well, no, the uh, the South Africans summoned the American ambassador. They gave him uh, real blasting. And subsequently, the American ambassador apologized to South Africa for clearly crossing the line uh, of mm. uh, undim- undiplomatic uh, behavior. But I suppose my overarching point was the vast majority of people in South Africa know that it was Russia that was on their side fighting apartheid and America that was on the side of apartheid. Exactly. And we saw this with the proposed BRICS summit, which is going to happen in August in South Africa. You know, we saw Julius Malema, who's the leading opposition figure from a black party, saying that he would personally, you know, escort President Putin to the country. We saw President Ramaphosa saying that, you know, it's time to maybe leave the ICC. And that's because, you know, Africans' history or memory isn't as short as the West would like us to think it is. We remember who supported apartheid. We remember who opposed apartheid. And, and you know, if, if South Africa wants to do drills with China and Russia, that is their right. If it wants to orbit towards, um, you know, that to the, to, towards China and Russia, that is their right. And we're seeing that actually this policy by the United States of weaponizing their currency, weaponizing their dollar, is actually having an adverse effect and pushing more and more countries um, towards Russia and China. We saw it recently as Kamala Harris visited Africa. She was humiliated in Zambia. She was then humiliated in Gambia. She visited Tanzania and had a good photo with the newly elected female president. But still, overall, it was seen as a disaster for the United States. And that's because they're insisting that we, we take a part in a conflict. However, any other international issue of the day, they don't want to hear our voice. We Africans never got asked for our position vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine, but now we're, we're asked to take a position vis-a-vis Ukraine-Russia. Africa was never, the UN General Assembly was never seen as an important vehicle when every year they unanimously vote against the blockade against Cuba. But now the UN General Assembly is this important vehicle that we all need to utilize. So it's just hypocrisy at its finest. And Africans can see it. And that's why, you know, state by state, they see their path towards prosperity um, closer aligned to China in particular than the United States. The debts that that, that China um, incurs on, on Africa doesn't come with conditions on how to spend your money on, on, on austerity, on IMF structural readjustment programs. So, you know, it's it's an obvious choice and it's obvious why. All these, all these African nations are moving in that direction. Finally, Ahmed, how do people follow your work? How can people support it? Well, for once, I'm going to say not to follow me, Ahmed Cabello. Follow African Stream. All of the good work, all of the good work that I'm putting in is, you know, coming out via African Stream. So follow African Stream on TikTok, where we've now got 290,000 followers. Follow us on Instagram, where we've now got over 80,000 followers and growing. And we only launched at the end of September. So we've got a fantastic, young, dynamic team. We're all based 
Well, the core of the team is based in Nairobi. We've got freelancers in Nigeria, a freelancer in Haiti, a freelancer in Burkina Faso, and we're continuing to expand. And finally, if you're a pan-African anti-imperialist journalist, please contact us as we're looking to expand the team every single day. Fantastic. Ahmed Caballo, great to see you having gone so far. Thanks for joining us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A very big thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon. I really do uh, depend on that. Andy on Patreon says, regarding the viewership of Moats, your 1.6 million views in the last week, I know for an absolute fact that 10 to 20 people are watching you tonight in a small village in Western Uganda using an old cell phone with a little screen. It's Mother's Day there. So happy Mother's Day, Mum. I'll be saying more about Mother's Day, Andy, but thank you so much for that. I can't tell you how touched I am to hear that. Morris McIntyre says Israel has ignored all attempts to reconcile from the Oslo Agreement and to the many attempts over decades with Yasser Arafat, who really was the best hope. Full on boycotting and lobbying in peaceful protests has to be considered the only option is a two-state solution. Thank you, Morris. Matthew White says, yes, they are guilty of war crimes. Moreover, Israel and its U.S. colonial sponsor rendered the United Nations entirely null and void. Thanks, Matthew. Graham Briggs White says, I cannot... He's a legend, Graham, by the way. He's a Moats legend, Graham Briggs White. I cannot comprehend, after all these decades, the constant displacement and theft of land that this is still allowed to go on. Yasser Arafat sadly died without seeing his people safe, and it disgusts me. Uh, Graham, uh, we'll talk about President Arafat uh, one day. He's very sorely missed, not least by me. Hawk Lee, a new patron, thank you, Hawk, says, as backers of the Israeli apartheid regime, the US and UK and Australia are guilty of war crimes against the Palestinian people. So please do search out my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway and follow me. Seth, welcome to the show. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. Uh, so happy and privileged to be able to connect a first-time listener. Go yeah, ahead, sir. Um, so, so um, I'm calling uh, just to comment on the debacle concerning the U.S. ambassador's remarks, uh, the allegations about South Africa supplying Russia with arms. And just to provide some context to perhaps some of your, your viewers and listeners who uh, need a bit of context. So in December last year, a Russian cargo ship, the Lady R, docked in Simonstown, which is, um, which happens to be South Africa's, uh, South African Navy's largest base. Uh, there were media reports that some cargo was loaded onto the ship 
the, the contents of which remain a matter of speculation. And when pressed about the matter, the defense minister dismissed the allegations about um, arms transfer. And um, interestingly, following this incident uh, earlier this year, we then saw South Africa conduct joint naval exercises with Russia and China in February, uh, around the same time as the one-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war. When we take together um, this development, it comes as a little surprise that uh, this development riled the United States, um, coupled, of course, with South Africa's stance of non-alignment with regard to the Russia-Ukraine war. What's, what's interesting uh, is that the timing of the American ambassador's comments also come at a time when South Africa is preparing to host the BRICS summit, uh, a momentous period in history when we are witnessing the makings of the multipolar world order, something which uh, the U.S. and its allies, of course, find antithetical to the U.S.-led hegemonic liberal order. So on the foreign policy side of things, uh, Mr. Galloway, I think it's important to mention that on the line uh, is South Africa's eligibility um, under the African Growth Opportunity Act, uh, AGOA, uh, which is up for, for renegotiation in 2025. Um, AGOA grants uh, duty-free access to thousands of South African exports. And also, inadvertently perhaps, South Africa finds itself caught up in a geopolitical context. So its foreign policy metal is being uh, tasted, tested, and uh, the capacity to balance values and interests in an increasingly fragmented um, world order. And I think it's also important to mention that this, of course, tells us or points us to the classic two-level game in foreign policy, this balancing of domestic and external interests in light of the juncture which South Africa finds itself in, uh, an embattled economy, um, energy crisis, uh, to the extent that which the state is actually struggling to keep the, the lights on. And it, it can scarcely afford to be embroiled in a costly ge uh, geopolitical and zero-sum um, um, diplomatic role. And, and just in the bigger scheme of things, it's, um, it's, a, it's an important crucible for South Africa's post-apartheid foreign policy and for the Ramaphosa administration. And um, it also um, leads us to, to just contend with the, the idea that South Africa is being forced to grapple, grapple with um, a bigger question about national interest and the means and trade-offs that come with pursuing the national interest. Well, thank you, ma'am. A very powerful uh, statement. I appreciate it. Uh, I'll only add this context that Africa, uh, South Africa, has always been in the maelstrom of geopolitical uh, complication. It's just that its stance has uh, changed uh, when uh, apartheid South Africa was a tool of NATO and Western uh, geopolitics. And now that apartheid is overthrown, that South Africa is liberated, uh, then it's only right that South Africa's role in this complicated geopolitical world is a very different one. And this, finally, if South Africa did supply weapons to Russia, what is wrong with that? Every country in the European Union is supplying weapons to Ukraine. Why are supplying weapons to Ukraine 
kosher, but supplying weapons to Russia are haram. Where does that idea come from? There are no United Nations sanctions on Russia because, of course, no such resolution could ever get through the United Nations. These are Western sanctions. Well, let Western countries sanction as they will, even though increasingly they're discovering, in truth, they're sanctioning themselves, but let them. It's their right to sanction anybody that they please, but they cannot order other people to join their unilateral, extraterritorial sanctions. This is a very important point. Ma'am, thank you for the call. Uh, Deke is in London, but also wants to talk about Africa. Deke, welcome to the show. Hello, George. And I just wanted to say, obviously, the biggest issue Africa have is the westernized involvement within in the countries all over Africa. And there's uh, mm. rumors going on in African radio. They'll probably be kicking out all the NATO embassy out of Africa within the next two years. Do you think that's possible? I don't, and I wouldn't advise it. Uh, I don't think uh, kicking out embassies is, in general, a good idea. It's always wise to have a channel uh, through which you can speak. I'm in favor of jaw, jaw, rather than war, war. And so I always deplore it when embassies are closed. Go on, Dick. Um, and I'm biggest fan you have, obviously, I've been following you for years, and obviously uh, I stand Thank by you. you, every word you said, and the things you stand up for as a man is, 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 is touching the heart of all men so who has a good heart, and I always appreciate you, Thank and you, I, I'm a big follower in Twitter, obviously, and I'm the, always the guy to say, MashaAllah, and your kids, but I'm glad I spoke to you for once okay. in my life, and I'm so happy to hear your voice through my phone for once, but I thank you, sir. The pleasure is entirely mine, and may God bless you and yours. Thank you uh, so much. Back to the lines. Michael is in Washington on Biden-Trump. Go ahead, Michael. Guten Tag, Herr Galloway. Well, isn't it exciting, the German show coming up? Yes, it is, and I hope it spreads like fire. I have a feeling it will, you know. We, I've, I have noticed uh, through my studies and observations of politics about the world, many thanks to you, that leadership positions seems to be um, getting a little bit worse. It's almost as if it's a center of gravity for sociopaths who, who like to lie. And the reason uh, you got you got people, most people, they like to get a job, have a family, go to work. But in the leadership positions, I've noticed there's two types. There's builders and destroyers, it seems like. Donald Trump, he's a builder. He makes a situation win-win. But creatures like uh, this Biden fellow, it's win-lose. He destroys other stuff, and he says, oh, that's our win. Is that typical of politics that you've noticed? No, I'll tell you what the main change uh, for me, Michael, is the quality of the sociopaths. Uh, don't forget that I entered Parliament when Margaret Thatcher was 
the wrecking ball, uh, applying herself to the British economy, to the manufacturing sector, to our industrial base, to our extricative uh, industries, and so on. She was a very considerable sociopath, but she was of quality. She was good at it. She was plausible at explaining it. She was capable and competent. And around the world, you could say, uh, and I made the comparisons last week with De Gaulle and Macron, uh, with, uh, with Willy Brandt and uh, Gerhard Schroeder and the Schultz, little soldier Schultz that we have now. I made these comparisons and I suppose my general thesis, Michael, is not that they are now sociopaths but before were St. Francis of Assisi, they never were. But the level of competence, capability, has shrunk to a dwarfish proportion uh, that is very difficult for me to believe. I spent nearly 30 years sitting uh, in the British Parliament and I kind of worked in and around the Parliament uh, for a good few years before that, uh, for seven years before that. So in that 37 years in which the British Parliament was my main theatre, if you like, in my life, I am astounded at the quality of the people that we now have in charge of British politics and of American politics. I mean, I'm looking at these videos of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, and I honestly don't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm laughing at her because she's berserk. I mean, she truly is stark raving bonkers. Imagine her with the nuclear football at the bottom of her bed, and I look at her boss, Joe Biden, and I cannot get the image out of my mind that he'll fall over it in a rush to the bathroom, as is his wont, increasingly, kick the nuclear football and plummet us all into the destruction of the entire planet. Thank you, Michael, in Washington State. Let's go to Mick in Notting Hill Mounds. My old stamping ground, Mick. Nice to hear from you. What would you like to say? We're going to Gabriel in New Mexico. We're going to come back to Mick in Notting Hill after that great build-up. Gabriel, welcome. George, I'm so delighted. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the edge of a rushing stream on the Picarus Pueblo in sight of a buffalo herd. Oh, um, is there a buffalo herd still extant? Yeah, and, and I'm on the edge of a Pueblo, you know, traditional, uh, not a reservation, but a continuously sovereign uh, uh, in, uh, Native I've American reading, territory of Picarus uh, tribe. I've been, I've been reading all about the destruction, the literal annihilation, the genocide of the Comanche people, uh, whose demise was actually executed by my fellow countryman, a Scotsman, Ranald Mackenzie. Uh, next time you hear a Scotsman telling you that they are the victims of colonialism, just tell them about Ronald McKenzie. Go ahead, Gabe. So uh, I, I, I've, all, I've been, I've respected and uh, and uh, admired you ever since. Uh, um, just short of twenty years ago, your uh, defiant exchange with uh, 
Senator Coleman. Um, ah, yes. You know, the first year off. A good day, a great day. And I'm calling because, uh, you know, my grandfather flew for the Free French. He's buried in Fakenham outside of London, I think. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. my father wrote extensively on, on the uh, collabor French collaboration. And I think they would be rolling in the, in my, well, one is, one is alive that has dementia, but my grandfather would be rolling in his grave at the, the historical amnesia and perversion of um, the way history has been erased. And um, I look, I, I remember, I, I, you probably remember this, but about a year ago, uh, the, the, the commemoration of uh, uh, Russian Victory Day above Times Square was amended to read Russian Shame Day. And uh, I'm no longer in New York City. If I had been, I would have, I would have got, I would have climbed up there and committed an act of vandalism. But um, well, Gabriel, it's it, not even just amnesia, is it? it? It's worse than amnesia. Amnesia amongst forgetful people can be understood. It is willful, deliberate. Orwellian, mendacious, lying rewriting of history. It is stating falsehoods and presenting them as truths and erasing truths and turning them into falsehoods. I give you, given the hour, just one example. In 1950, 86% of French people, when asked, which country had made the greatest contribution to the victory in the Second World War answered the Soviet Union. Today, the majority of people in France believe that the United States made the greatest contribution to the victory in the Second World War, when Hollywood notwithstanding, nothing, to be honest, could possibly be further from the truth. Eliana in Alaska is on the line. Eliana, welcome. Hi, George. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I, I listened to your show and I am so, I, I am so thankful for you voicing the truth always. You know, you are a person you. that you're always being true uh, from a young age. Um, no yeah. masks. I have a question. Are we are we jungle or are we um, a garden here in the United States? Borrell didn't mention the United States, I, I, but you know, like I see more, um, um, but I don't see a garden here. Well, I think that is beautifully expressed. Alaska may be a garden. I've never been there, but the great majority of American cityscapes, townscapes, uh, are uh, and its infrastructure, its bridges and its highways and so on are in such a parlous case uh, that uh, they would be far more uh, properly described as a jungle rather than a garden. For those who don't know, Joseph Borrell, a Spaniard, uh, regards the European Union as a garden and described those outside the European Union as living in a jungle. He obviously hadn't looked round the capital cities 
and big cities uh, of the European Union's countries before making this deeply insulting comparison. But the truth is, all the growth and the development uh, of uh, prosperity and stability is outside of the European Union and North America. When I look at some of these pictures from San Francisco, from Chicago, when I look at the crime uh, statistics, as I do every weekend, about how many people were shot, how many people were murdered in the United States across uh, the uh, great urban landscapes, I'm all the while reminded that the United States is an empire in very steep decline. It's societal, it's cultural, it's soft power, uh, and it's economic power are all in rapid, steep decline. The only thing remaining, you might say this is a feature of jungle life, uh, is its big sharp teeth. And with its big sharp teeth, it can still inflict uh, horrific wounds on people, it can still tear them down, it can still destroy, but it has now no capacity to make, to build, as a caller just uh, mentioned there. Norma, the legend, is in Bristol, wants to have a word. Norma, always wonderful to hear your voice. What would you like to say? Hello, George. Um, I just made a few comments, actually. Um, I'll be yeah. quick, because I know it's late. Um, the Ahmed Caballo man, I thought, was very knowledgeable. Now, um, it was a bit too complicated for me, the Sudan situation. But, I mean, the main point is no winners, and it's very, very sad for the ordinary people. <laughs> and the Christian evangelist in Kenya, that was depressing and sad. But the, the, I'll get to the point in a minute. But the African bias against the USA... Now, that was interesting. My point being, George, internationalism reigns supreme on your show. And thanks for having that guest and for educating us a bit more. It really is quite exciting at times, but a little bit complicated. Well, how lovely of you to say. We have uh, always tried. We set out to become... Uh, the global university of the airwaves. And I think we truly have, as is evident in every message, every call, every guest, every topic uh, that we turn to. Uh, we are the only people playing this role. One day there will be many, and we will be merely the pioneers uh, of this development. Unfortunately, we have uh, run out of time. It is Mother's Day. Uh, or Birthing Parents Day, as some would uh, have us uh, describe it now. Birthing Parents Day, uh, the birthing parent that does the chest feeding, uh, to be more precise. But it'll always be Mother's Day to me. Uh, it is glorious that uh, my own mother is still alive, aged 88, and I send her uh, Mother's Day greetings. I greet my mother-in-law. Uh, in Indonesia uh, with the deepest respect and I bow uh, before you. I greet all the mothers of the world on this 
International Mother's Day. Paradise lies under the mother's feet. This I truly believe. Of course, fathers are important, but it is the mother who nurtures and carries for nine long months uh, the uh, infant within and will almost certainly in the overwhelming number of cases uh, be the main caregiver, the main nourishment of that child in its early years. The mother could scarcely be more important and is thus exalted in the great religious texts. Incidentally, uh, Our Lady uh, Maria the Madonna is mentioned more often in the Quran than she is in the Bible. But the uh, exaltation of motherhood for millennia has not been for nothing because without our mothers we're not just nothing we literally would not have existed and we would not have become the men and women that we have become and one of the most repellent of many repellent current trends in social and cultural development in our country and in many countries around the Western world is to cancel the mother, to rename her, to pretend that a man can be your mother, to denigrate the sacredness of motherhood and of women. A woman is an adult female. A mother is an adult female who has given birth. Hallelujah. May God bless all the mothers of the world and damn all these efforts to cancel and degrade her. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. 1.6 million people watched last week. How many will watch this week? Let's see. Please spread the word about the show because if you all did, that would mean that one day I could announce that three million people had watched all or part of the Mother of All talk shows. Please bring at least one other viewer to the show. See you Wednesday at the later time of 9 p.m. UK.